If I could invite you to gather your attention together on the Word of God and in prayer, I would like to pray briefly and ask for God's help as we open Ephesians chapter 3 together. So let's pray. Father, I ask for your help for those who hear, and I ask for your help for me, that I would be faithful to your Word, that you would grant me the gift of self forgetfulness and humility, that you would grant necessary clarity and courage, and that your word would be made clear and powerful for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I'm going to preach this message to you two times today. I'm going to preach one message about eight minutes long and give you the big picture. And then we'll do about a 15-minute message to go into greater detail and unpack the three scenes of the picture that I want you to have. So, we're all together in Ephesians 3, and there are three scenes that I want you to see in the big picture. So, here we go. Scene number one, the great sovereign cosmic purpose of God is to make known the glory of His wisdom to the demonic powers of the universe. Verses 8, 9, and 10. So look at those with me. Here we go. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, to the nations, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the first thing Paul is to preach is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Second, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So those two things preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and make known the mystery which God has kept secret for ages but is now revealing. Now why? Why are those two things to be preached? And the answer is given in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And we know from Ephesians chapter 6 that that phrase, rulers and authorities, means demons, powerful satanic forces in the world and in the prince of the power of the air, the heavenly places. So the summary of this uh, scene is that Paul is preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is revealing the mystery kept secret for the ages, and he's doing both of those things in order that the wisdom of God might be displayed to demonic powers. That's the summary of scene number one, the cosmic purpose of God to display the glory of His wisdom to the authorities and the rulers. 
God is not a tribal deity. His purposes encompass the whole universe. If there had been Christians on other planets, in other galaxies, they would have been invited to Lausanne. Because we are not merely a global congress on world evangelization. We are a global congress on cosmic manifestation of the infinite glory of the wisdom of God. That's scene number one in the big picture, scene number two. God has chosen that some of His servants be imprisoned as a way of bringing about His cosmic purpose. Verse 1, verse 13, let's read them. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, prisoner on behalf of the nations. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now notice, Paul does not draw attention to his suffering in order that he might receive pity from us. He draws attention to his suffering because he wants us to see his sufferings are our glory. Look at the end of verse 13. I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, God's design is that the, the church be drawn into the glory of the unsearchable riches of Christ through the suffering of her missionaries and her ministers. Our suffering is their glory. They are drawn into the glory of the unsearchable riches of Christ through the suffering of the missionaries and the ministers of the gospel. They are made glorious in Christ through our sufferings. God gathers a people for Himself from the nations through the sufferings of the missionaries and the ministers. Now, why would God glorify His church this way through the sufferings of her ministers and missionaries? Because He is displaying His infinite wisdom. He is infinitely wise in magnifying a people for His name with the glory of the unsearchable riches of His Son through the suffering of His emissaries. That's scene number two. Here's scene number three. 
God has chosen that the supernatural power required to see the glory of His wisdom and to suffer for His name comes to us through earnest prayer. Verses 14 through 21 are a prayer. Paul is praying that what he's preaching will come to pass. The prayer in chapter 1, verses 17 following. The prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 following, are meant to take what had been taught in chapter 1 and taught in chapter 2 and 3 and pray it into reality. Notice the connection between verse 14, which is the beginning of the prayer, and what has gone before. Paul wants us to see and enjoy the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 8. Paul wants us to understand and embrace the mystery hidden for ages. Verse 9. Paul wants us to be a part of revealing the glory of God's wisdom. Verse 10. And Paul wants his suffering to be our glory. Verse 13. Notice how verse 14 begins. For this reason. Because I want all that to happen. And it can't happen, humanly speaking. Therefore, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Why? No human being can see the riches of Christ, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. Nobody can see that. No human being can embrace the mystery of the ages and bring their life into conformity to it. No human being can manifest the glory of the strange wisdom of God. No human suffering can be glorious unless divine, supernatural, omnipotent power comes into our lives. And it comes into our lives through prayer. That's the point of these prayers in Ephesians. That's the end of the first sermon. The three scenes. Now, we go back and we look at the scenes again. Scene number one. There are three parts, you remember. The wisdom of God being manifest to the powers and rulers and authorities, the demons, and to Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. Number two, the riches, the unsearchable riches of the glory of Christ. Verse 8. Third, the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Verse 9. Now my question is, what's the relationship between these three parts of scene one? How do they relate to each other? The clue as to how they relate is found in the meaning of the mystery. And I direct your attention now 
to verse 6. Because in verse 6, we have the definition of the mystery that has been secret for ages and now is being revealed. What is it? Verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles, that's most of us here, the nations, are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that the the Gentiles, the nations, are now included in the promises of God made to Israel. That's why verse 8 says, Paul preaches to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Christ, the Messiah. This is stunning that now all the nations are included in all the promises made to Israel. This is the mystery. All the promises of God made in the Old Testament are now, yes, in Christ Jesus, in Messiah Jesus. And everyone who is connected to Jesus by faith alone is an heir of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Now, the connection between that and the unsearchable riches of the Messiah is that that's what they inherit. The mystery is that all of the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and His kingdom are now inherited not only by Christ-trusting Jews, but by Christ-trusting pagan Gentiles from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. That's the mystery and that's the connection between the first two parts of the scene. The unsearchable riches of the Messiah, which we're all on tiptoe to fully receive, and the mystery are connected because the mystery is that the nations participate in the promises made to Israel, and those promises are summed up in the unsearchable riches of the Messiah. Now, the question is, How does that connection, unsearchable riches, participated in by all the nations, relate to the manifestation of the wisdom of God to the devil? And the answer is found in the last phrase of verse 6. Look at it with me. This mystery, this inclusion of the nations in the unsearchable riches of the Messiah is, notice the phrase, through the gospel. The nations are streaming in to the unsearchable riches of the Messiah through the gospel. 
What's that? The clearest, most concise definition of the gospel that Paul ever gave was found in verses 1 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it for you. You know it. Now I would remind you of the gospel, verse 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So we Gentiles, we nations of the earth, are streaming in to the unsearchable riches of the Messiah through Christ's dying for us and being buried and rising triumphant over sin and death and Satan and guilt and shame and hell. It happens through the cross. Now my question is this. How does the cross relate to the wisdom of God displayed to the devil and his messengers? And you know where I'm going. I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 for the relationship between the gospel, the cross, and the wisdom of God displayed to the universe. It reads like this. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called from both Jews and the nations, the Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The crucifixion of the Messiah is not the wisdom of the world. It is not the power of the world. To the world, it is foolishness and it is weak. But to those who are called, whose eyes are opened by the sovereign call of God, the cross is, in reality, power and divine wisdom. When the Messiah dies on the cross, He creates the church out of all the nations of the world. And the world and the devil in this death and in this global creation of a new humanity, we see the wisdom of God in Christ. But the amazing thing is in a little phrase at the beginning of verse 10. We don't just see the wisdom of God in Christ, His person, 
and his work. We do. We do. That is where it shines most brightly. But what it says at the beginning of verse 10 is this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to all those wicked powers. This is breathtaking. There isn't anything greater that can be said about this reality in this room called the church and all over the world. There isn't anything greater that can be said about the global church of Jesus but that through the death of the Messiah, God has created a people in whom He means for His infinite wisdom to be manifest to the cosmic powers of evil. It is a stunning thought. So scene number one is the inclusion of the nations in the unsearchable riches of the Messiah through the gospel of Christ crucified. And that crucifixion is the wisdom of God displayed and it is displayed through the church in the world. And one day, God hastened the day, one day, all the rulers and all the authorities and all the demons and Satan himself as they are thrown into the lake of fire will be forced to say, God is infinitely wise. Now, before I turn to scene number two, and three. We'll take them together in just a moment. Before I do that, I want you to notice one more implication. And I felt led to draw this out. I rewrote this last night for us because I think there is a tension among us that could be overcome if I get this right. Why? does it require the crucifixion of the Son of God in order for the Jewish people and the nations to enter the unsearchable riches of Christ? Why that price? Now there are different ways to answer that. And I'm going to give you one crucial, indispensable way. And it's found in a little phrase in verse 3 of chapter 2. So if you'll drop your eyes with me up, I'm going to read this verse and point out one phrase which is indispensable in this Congress. If we're to get the gospel right and evangelism right, and the wisdom of God right. Verse 3 of chapter 2, we all once lived among the sons of disobedience in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, here it comes, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's terrifying. 
All human beings are children of wrath. By nature, they didn't just decide to be this way. It's their nature, my nature, your nature is sinful and corrupt and rebellious. Christ did not have to die merely because I'm a sinner. He had to die because God in His infinite holiness and justice is angry at the world. We are children of anger. We are justly deserving of the wrath and the anger of God. This is the greatest problem for mankind in the universe. There isn't anything that surpasses lostness and being bound for an everlasting suffering under the wrath of God. Now you can feel perhaps the tension. If, if God had not in love put Christ between His wrath and us so that Christ, according to Galatians 3.13, would become the curse for us. He became the curse for us. Or according to Romans chapter 8, verse 3, He bore the condemnation for our sin. It stopped on Him. If God had not done that, all Jews and all nations would perish forever under the just condemnation of God. And God did put Christ forward. He did offer His own Son so that anyone everywhere who believes in Him would not suffer eternally. Now, here's a statement I want to venture. Please, Go with me here. I'm begging God that you will be able to go with me here. There are two truths that are in tension in this room and in the global church. There are many, but I'm talking about two. One truth goes like this. When the gospel takes root in our souls, it impels us outward to the alleviation of all unjust human suffering in this age. And yesterday was a loud thunderclap of that truth, and it is true. And there's another truth. And the other truth is, when the gospel takes root in our souls, it awakens us to the horrible reality of eternal suffering in hell under the wrath of a just and omnipotent God. And it impels us out to rescue the perishing. We cry, flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. That's our message. Because Christ has died. He has absorbed the wrath of God. He has canceled sin. Everyone who is united to Him by faith alone is forgiven of their sins and counted righteous in Christ and has eternal life. Come, O nations. Come to Christ. That's our message. It is the most important news in the universe. And here's my sentence I want to 
try on you. Some love the one truth preeminently, others the other. What I want us to be able to say, could Lausanne say, could the global church say this? For Christ's sake, we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. I don't want you to choose between these two truths. Christ doesn't want you to choose between pouring your life out for the alleviation of unjust human suffering now and the pouring out your life to rescue the perishing from everlasting suffering, which is 10 million times worse than anything anybody will ever experience here. I don't want you to choose between those two. Christ is calling us to pull these together. If there rises in your heart a resistance to the phrase, especially eternal suffering, or if there rises in your heart a resistance to the phrase, we care about all suffering now, if resistance rises to either one of those, either we have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. Now I close just very briefly with a reference to scene number two and scene number three. We spent almost all of our time on scene one. We just wrap it up here with a brief look at scene number two and three, namely suffering and prayer. And it goes like this. God appoints suffering and prayer as a means of gathering the nations into the unsearchable riches of the glory of God's wisdom. Suffering and prayer, prison and prayer are appointed by God. When Paul was willing to go to prison for the sake of Christ, he showed the nations that Christ is more precious than freedom. When Paul was willing to suffer for Christ, he showed the nations that Christ is more precious than comfort and security and prosperity. In other words, the infinite value of the wisdom of God is revealed not in Paul's prosperity, but in Paul's pain, in his prison. That's where it shines, because this is the wisdom of the cross. And we are called to take up our crosses and display to the demons that we treasure Christ more than any human comfort. We're not after prosperity, we're after Christ. And so our suffering then becomes the glory of the nations. They see the beauty and value and glory of the unsearchable riches of Christ in our willingness to go to prison or to suffer in order to draw them into it with us. That's the way God has made it to be. Now, last comment. Nobody chooses to go to prison. Nobody chooses to walk away from prosperity. Nobody can see the breadth and length and height and depth 
of the love of Christ so fully that they're willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Nobody says with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nobody talks like that unless divine, supernatural, sovereign, omnipotent power has broken into their lives and God has ordained that it come into our lives through prayer. So unto you, O Lord, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think through the power that is at work in us. To you, O Lord, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen.